morning we're in Genesis chapter 6. If you look in your sermon notes, I've got this uh, little scheme that's in there. And uh, it points to the method in my madness, if you want to call it that. In that what we've sort of been doing over the past few months is laying out the, uh, the, the history of redemption, uh, starting with creation and you know, ending with restoration. And all of those are really points at which people can come in and out of the story, and which as we interact with people who, who don't know what God has done and is doing and will do in the future, uh, that, that these are different places where you can bring them into it and begin to uh, let them know what indeed He has done. So, basically that idea that any topic can lead you into the gospel. So, kind of getting there. All right. Genesis, chapter 6. Let us hear the word of our God. When man began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the Lord, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood and make uh, rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet uh, wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food 
for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Let's pray. Father, at times your word is far beyond our experience. And apart from your grace, we'll just chalk it up to myth or the relevant myth stories that have no bearing in truth or life. So help us to embrace the reality of the situation and the truth of your word. Help us to believe that you have written this to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus and to prepare us for good works. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's wrath. That is often brought up among non-Christians as one of the great obstacles that they experience in believing the Scriptures and therefore the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. They struggle with God's wrath. They see it somehow as, as capricious, as without merit, uh, as rash, something that's unfair. Many people struggle with that. And yet, it's interesting because the same people who struggle with the wrath of God also struggle with the lack of justice in our world. That's all Madoff gets. There's a disconnect. They, they don't want God to be just and righteous, and yet they see the injustice and unrighteousness in our world and are concerned. Which is what brings us to this text. That we might see that God's justice is not capricious. That it is not unjust. But indeed, it is the result of His patience as well as His holiness, and yet there is mercy to be had there. The big idea this morning is that God reveals His justice and mercy in judgment and salvation, which is a a theme that's kind of run all the way through the Scriptures. So, first part of that this morning, you know, as as we look at this text, we see that God justly judges all who fill the world with evil. That he justly judges all who fill the world with evil. This is sort of a strange text because the first thing we see is is the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, we haven't seen that phrase before. And after this, we won't really see that phrase again. Now, we see the sons of God coming up in one of the Psalms, and that refers, we think, to the angels. And that has led some people to believe that uh, what was happening here is that angels are marrying women. Okay, that's one of the three main interpretations of this particular passage. It's something like the movie City of Angels. You know, we all saw that. Oh, I don't know if we all saw that. But, you know, Nicolas Cage plays the angel who beholds the beauty that is Meg Ryan. Okay? Now, some of you may not get that, but I grew up Meg Ryan. Okay? <laughs> she was the reason I watched a soap opera. Anyway. And he forsakes his angel... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Past tense. Okay. When she left, it was no good. Um, but anyway, you know, he, he forsakes his angeliness or, you know, his angelicness uh, in order to be with her. He becomes a person. And so it's sort of like that in a sense. But, 
as we look, there's a principle of interpretation called the analogy of Scripture that we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And basically what that means is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Clear Scripture interprets the unclear Scripture. And so if we look at the clear Scripture, what we find is that angels do not procreate. And so we find that this interpretation doesn't really match up with the rest of what goes on in Scripture. And not only that, we, we find that God judges humanity for what's going on. He doesn't judge the angelic beings. So I would say this particular interpretation just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense of the text. It doesn't make sense of the whole of Scripture. So if you hold to that view or you've, been, you've heard that before and you thought, oh, wow, cool, probably not so cool, Okay. Not what's really going on here. The second main interpretation is that the sons of God points to demon-possessed tyrants who are taking numerous wives. And so we have these powerful men who are exploiting other people. And so it's probably a case of polygamy. Okay, They're, they're probably taking more than one, but they're taking them probably against the will of the women. And so there's this corruption of marriage which is in view. I'm not so sure that's what this is. The third interpretation, which has roots all the way back to the third century, and people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and others, uh, R.C. Sproul, have have, uh, taught this, is that the sons of God refers to the line of Seth and the daughters of men refer to the line of Cain. And so what that would mean is that what is going on here is that there is interfaith marriage that is taking place. That the the sons of those who call upon the name of the Lord are beginning to take as wives the daughters of those who don't call upon the name of the Lord. Interfaith marriage. And so a corruption, a departure from what we're going to see that, that, that takes place in the, in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament. For when Israel moved into the promised land, one of the things they were commanded is don't take foreign wives. They must belong to the Lord. They must confess his name. If they want to join Israel in not just its national borders, but also in its faith, great. But if not, you're not to marry them, lest they bring their gods into Israel and corrupt the nation. And kind of guess what happened? We see this also in the New Testament where Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know, you're free to marry just as long as they belong to the Lord. And so what's going on probably is here is this idea of interfaith marriage. But the bottom line of even if it's one of the, the last two is that marriage has been corrupted even more with the passage of time. Things did not get better. Things got worse. And so God declares that he will no longer strive or contend or more likely plead with humanity. Catch that for a moment. There's a lot we don't know. And yet what we do know right here says, apparently God has been pleading with humanity just as he pled with with uh, Cain, as we read last week, or two weeks ago, rather. So God has not been silent about the sin of people, but he's been pleading with them through faithful men like Enoch to turn from their wickedness. And so he says, 120 more years. Now some people have taken this to see that well, they lived a long time back then, and now God is changing how long people live. No, that's not really what it is. He's saying the death sentence is 120 years. That's when it's, I'm going to execute the penalty. There's 120 more years 
that I'm putting up with this, and then it's all going to come to an end. Okay? But see the mercy in that? He's telling them when it's going to end. He's telling them that there's still a chance. There's still time. I've been pleading with you, and I'm going to plead with you for another 120 years. There is still time to repent. It is then we come to another one of these strange phrases that we find in this passage. The Nephilim. Okay, who knows what a Nephilim is? Yeah, the King James translates that term as giants. You know, um, probably not exactly what it is. Uh, we find this probably is meaning more mighty men, like David's mighty men, great warriors. The special forces of the day, so to speak, as it kind of builds on this with their men of renown. They had great reputation. But the problem was, they were the bad guys. This was Jesse James. Or, a little more semi-local flavor, Billy the Kid. Great gunfighters, but they used their talents for evil as opposed to protecting those who needed protection from the wicked. These are the oppressors of others who use their strength to steal and to take from others. They are filling the world with violence. Key word right there. What was humanity supposed to fill the earth with? God's image. Reflecting His glory and His righteousness and His goodness. And what has happened instead is that God declares that they have filled the earth with violence. With wickedness. And so they have been rebellious against the creation mandate. So that, that, that see, they've, they've completely done the opposite of what God called them to do. In this. And so what's going to happen is that now God is going to fill the earth with water. The waters of judgment shall come upon the earth. And again, there's, there's some symmetry that is here because the same, there's a word here that they have corrupted or ruined or destroyed the earth is what God says. The same word is used in terms of what he's going to do. They have ruined the earth. He is about to ruin them. He's about to bring them down because of what they have done. God reveals himself as, in a sense, the destroyer. Now, the scriptures talk about his regret. You know, some, some translate this that the Lord repented of what he had done. And what's going on here is, speaking as if God was a man, okay? It's not like God is up there, was up there in heaven at that point in time going, man, what did I do? I gotta fix this fast. <laughs> okay? This is a part of his plan from the beginning. As difficult as it is for us to grasp that and understand that. This did not catch God unaware. And so it's speaking as though he's a human, and it's a clue because of this. And we're going to see this later on. When God is about to change his actions for good, we'll see this phrase, and God remembered blank. We're going to see this with Noah. God remembered Noah. He's stuck in the ark. 
God's going to remember him. He's going to change what he's doing. We see this in uh, Exodus, the very first chapters of, of Exodus. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And so that means God's about to change what he's doing and he's about to deliver his people. In this case, it's not God working to deliver. This is basically God working to judge. And so this is a cue that God is going to change his course of action. No longer is he going to be patient. No longer is he going to plead. But soon he will bring a righteous judgment upon those who have filled the earth with evil. Okay, That's what's going on. Let's not read too much into it. Or not enough into it. So, we see, you know, as we look at this, God is not capricious. He patiently pled with these people for over 1,500 years. Okay, uh, I did all the math this week. I was kind of checking all, adding all these things up. That's the beauty of having the genealogies in there, the line of Seth. I started adding all the numbers. And essentially, you know, it's about 1,500 years. This is not God on a whim kind of going, oh, yeah, I'm tired of this stuff. Boom. They have been increasing in wickedness for 1,500 years. That's a big number. How long has this country been a country? Just over 200 years. Let's think back for a moment to the year 500. Anyone know what was going on in the year 500? Okay. Topher, what? Okay. Imagine it's been that long. Okay? I mean, for us, that's, you know, ancient history. This is ancient history. That's how long it had been going on. God was not capricious in any way, shape, or form. Instead, he was patiently pleading with these people to turn from the course of action that they had gone on. And not only that, is he gives them another 120 years to change the course of their actions. So, this is not a whim. This is not God being petty or mean. This is God being righteous yet merciful. And so the judgment on earth was well-deserved and long overdue. So the second part of this is that God mercifully rescues all who walk with him by faith. Because there's this one guy, and we heard about him last week because his dad named him that the hope of comfort coming from the Lord, Noah. And it says that this man named Noah stood apart because he found grace, he found favor, he found acceptance from the Lord. And what happens, what's going to happen here is that he's going to function as a lowercase s savior for humanity. He's going to be the one through whom God delivers humanity at this point in time. Not into eternal life, but just to continue his saving purposes in history. Okay, And what we find here is that Noah is righteous. He sincerely served God. His character reflected God's character. What we're going to find is that Noah is also blameless. It doesn't mean that he was perfect, but that he was mature, that he was sound, that he was not a hypocrite in the eyes of men. His walk matched his talk. It also says that he walked with God, which brings up this echo of Enoch. 
what we're going to find is that the, the men who are mentioned in the line of Seth, all of his forefathers passed away before the flood takes place. And so, in a sense, he's it. He's the last man standing who was righteous by grace at that time. Okay? And he lived this way despite the chaotic moral sore that was going on around him. We, we sometimes, we think, don't we? You know, boy, it's getting bad out there. Imagine being Noah. Church of eight. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, we can call our brothers and sisters at Catalina Foothills and uh, um, Dove Mountain and Rincon Mountain and, you know, the Sovereign Grace Church around there and the other churches in the area. You know, there's brothers and sisters, right? Here's the church of eight and there's no other church. It's like Lord of the Flies is taking place outside of his window. And if anyone familiar with the story, the, the book or the movie, Lord of the Flies, okay? The, the, the British schoolboys get stranded on an island and all of their civility falls away and they become brute savages, uh, killing one another to try and stay alive. That's what's going on outside of his window. And in the midst of that, Noah is righteous. How amazing is that? How powerful the grace of God that Noah could be righteous, blameless, and walk with him when everything is against that. It's truly amazing to me. Why is that? How did all this happen? Well, we go to Hebrews 11 and we read something like this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what happens is that God brings Noah into the loop, which is exactly what we see in the rest of scriptures. Uh, I'm reading Amos right now, and there's this little passage in Amos that talks about, do I not tell my prophets what I'm about to do? Noah is a prophet. He, he, God comes to Noah and tells him, look, I'm going to flood the earth. I know that's bad news, but here's good news. You are going to build an ark. A what? Okay. I can, I can see why the, the Bill Cosby skit's funny. Okay. Because this is outside of the realm of his knowledge. And what in the world's an ark? What do you mean it's going to rain? It's not that he lived in the desert like us. Is that before the flood, there was that didn't rain. So he, God is talking about all of these things that make no sense to Noah. And yet Noah believes that what God says is going to take place. And so by faith, he did all of these things. Noah believed that God's warning was true, even though it was at odds with his past experience. God, you haven't judged the earth. Why are you going to do it now? No one out there thinks they're doing anything wrong. What's up with this? We had a disciplinary issue at home today. 
And one of the children had a hard time understanding that, one, what they did was wrong, and two, they were really in trouble. Okay? That's the world around Noah. They don't think they're doing anything wrong, and they don't think that they're in trouble. And even though Noah's telling them they're in trouble, it's not connecting. And yet Noah continued to do this by faith. He believed that God's warning was true, that he was really going to judge the earth. He was really going to flood it, even though it made no sense to him. Not only that, but Noah believed that God's plan would work. I'm going to build an ark. I've never built an ark. I don't even know what an ark looks like. And so God gives him the, basically the plan for the ark, which similar to what happens with Moses. A tabernacle? What's a tabernacle? Here's the plans. Got them for you. It's a replica of what's in heaven with regards to the tabernacle. And so God gives Noah the plans for, for an ark. And Noah believed that God's plan would work, that the, that the ark would float, and that he would be safe. Imagine trusting your soul, your life, into the hands of a bunch of wood. I have no idea if this thing's going to float. That's kind of one of the interesting things that is very different in the Babylonian myth. The Babylonian myth, they have an ark, they have a flood, but guess what? Their ark is 180 feet by 180 feet by 180 feet by 180 feet. It's a cube. Not going to float. <laughs> this big cube, this is actually more like a boat. It made sense. It connects. That's what sets Scripture apart from all of the other myths that float around there about the origins of humanity. It actually does make sense. And so Noah believes this is going to work. This innovative idea is going to work. Not only that, but Noah's faith or trust sustained him through over 100 years of building the ark. His kids weren't born until after he started. He's doing this alone for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and then when they're old enough and big enough and strong enough, they're helping him out. But that's only three. <laughs> All right, my workforce quadrupled. <laughs> here's, here's, here's Noah with a small business on the side Is it because he still has to eat and drink and live while he's building the ark. So this is in his spare time. He's trying to build the ark. And not only does he have the hardship of a hundred plus years trying to build this humongous ark, he also has the pain and the sorrow of persistent persecution. It's going to rain, huh? Let's rain. Yeah, God's going to judge the earth. (laughs) You can see why Peter draws upon Noah when he's talking about the judgment that is to come in his second letter and his first letter. Noah, by faith, was protected and sustained through over a hundred years of persistent persecution. And so what we find is that the fate of his family, the fate of humanity, rests upon Noah's faithfulness. Because guess what? If he doesn't get the ark done in time, they're going to die. He can't slack off. He can't be casual about this. It can't be like 
some people I know who, well, I, I see in the Adirondacks when we go to, on vacation, you know, they, they, they have enough of their house built so that they can live in it, but they never finish it. No one's got to finish this thing before it starts to rain. Okay? It's not a nice hobby that he's got. But what we see is that God was going to rescue him from evil through the flood that judges humanity. When I was at GA, one of the, the pastors in the course of his sermon had told the story about a young girl, and I can't remember what class she had, but for some reason she was instructed as to the signs of a tsunami. Her family's on vacation in the Far East. And what happens? She sees the signs of the tsunami. And she tells her parents, there's a big wave coming. And they were able to get to a place of safety because they recognized the signs. They had to believe their daughter. I don't know if my daughter had come to me, well, you know, when she's 12. Dad, a tsunami's coming. No, I had to believe the signs, had to act upon the signs that he might deliver not just himself, but also his family. Here's the flip side. That little girl and her family saw something horrific. Because it's not like they escaped away to this magical little mountain and never saw anything again. They saw what happened. And so Noah is not transported to some faraway land. Noah and his family are in an ark. And when the rains start to come, they start to hear the screams and the pounding and the wailing and the pleading. He must have had to stop his ears or kick the elephants to make them wail loud so he didn't hear what was going on outside. But think about that for a moment. We cannot take the judgment of God lightly. It is horrific. But it's real. And maybe we're not so concerned about it because we don't see it as horrific as it really is. The people in in the book of Revelation are, are crying out for mountains to fall upon themselves precisely because the wrath of God is so great that that's even easier. That's how horrible it is. Unless we grasp that, we never come to a a real understanding of how great the grace and mercy of God is for us in Jesus Christ. And so God shows mercy to Noah, who's sustaining him and protecting him through faith. Last part of this is that we are to trust God to protect us until Jesus returns to judge and to save. Because Jesus in Matthew talks about the days when the judgment is going to come, and he says it's just going to be like the days of Noah. Life is going to be normal. People will be marrying and giving in marriage. They'll be going to work. They'll be partying. Life will be normal. It will be situation normal from their perspective, and then it's all going to change. It'd be easy for us to say, oh, you got to be like Noah. In fact, I, I heard a sermon when I was a young Christian, you know, build an ark. Okay, and I, he's a godly man. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to begrudge him anything. He was very important in my spiritual well-being. But the, but the point is, is that the scripture is not about us. It's primarily about Jesus. 
And so Noah points us not to ourselves and what we must do. This is not a call that, hey, you've got to be faithful and diligent or you're going to lose your salvation. What this is, is that Jesus is the one who was faithful, who did everything that he was supposed to do for us. If Jesus does not attend to all the details of the law, we're lost. The catechism I'm working on with Jay right now, the question that we're working with is that what he did in the covenant of grace is that he fulfilled the whole law for us and suffered punishment for our sins. And so our salvation rests upon the faithfulness of Jesus, not our faithfulness. Okay? We see in 1 Peter 3 that the ark points to his death and resurrection which save us. So not only is it his faithfulness, but it's also his sacrifice that saves us. But here's the deal. Remember, the the scripture here in, in, in Genesis 6 only talks about Noah. But how many were delivered through the ark? Eight. That idea of covenant headship comes into play here. They're saved because of their relationship with Noah. Noah's functioning as a covenant head. Again, what's taking place there is not eternal salvation. It's earthly salvation from the flood. But what's important is to be connected to Jesus. And it is only by faith that we get on the ark that is Jesus himself. That's where it comes back to us. Are we on the ark? Are we connected to Jesus by faith? Are we there? Because Jesus saves all who are united to him by faith, but he does not save those who through unbelief resist him. Not only that, but we also see this that kind of plays out in terms of, let's make the adjustment for us. We see that the same God who protected Noah from evil men, as we find in Peter's letters, also can deliver us from evil men in this evil world. That we need not fear unnecessarily, about what we see going on around us, but he is able, more than able, to protect us in the midst of what we see in terms of a world gone wacky. But then I also wonder, why do we fail so often to warn others about the wrath to come? Do we have unbelief? in a sense? Do, do we suspect that perhaps God won't do this? Or that it won't be bad? Or are we not really sure that the ark we're trusting in is going to hold water? Why is it that we're so reluctant to make known the judgment of God and the mercy of God? Last thing, really the last thing, is as we look at this text, we see that judgment and salvation come at the same time. The thing that basically saves Noah from a wicked world destroys or judges the wicked world. 
We see the same thing consistently throughout Scripture. The Israelites go through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea kills all the Egyptians. Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. He is removed as the place is destroyed. Our understanding of how things will take place when Jesus returns needs to be consistent with Scripture. And Scripture usually joins judgment and salvation. So that's my little plug for amillennialism right there. When we look at, at the history of judgment and salvation in Scripture, we see them together, not I'm saving you, and then seven years later, or three and a half years later, I'm going to kill everybody else. The return of Jesus accomplishes both judgment and salvation at the same time. So, anyway. Apart from faith, God's judgment seems cruel and capricious, petty and mean. But that's because people exclude the reality of our profound disobedience and God's incredible patient pleading with people. Faith not only believes that judgment will come, but faith believes that Jesus is able, more than able, to preserve us until that time and protect us in the midst of that time for the manifestation of His grace and His mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in Your justice in a world in which the wicked seem to prosper right now. Help us to trust in Your mercy displayed in Jesus the Messiah, that we might rely on His faithfulness Yet, like Noah, we are to warn others. We are to invite them onto the boat, so to speak, to partake of the mercy that is found in Jesus. And so may your Spirit give us discernment, wisdom, and boldness. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Savior and Lord of your people. Amen.